are you using an anonymous website for information, like to make decisions? He described me as a national security threat to the state of Israel. So I was like, are you using this to make decisions in which you then call me a national security threat? Israel has completely bought into its own propaganda that Arabs are only hostile to them, that Palestinians, the people who live a few miles away, only dream of killing them. We're trying to do the best that we possibly can. We're doing the best we possibly can as the world is literally on fire. As we're watching climate change happen, it's not happening down the road, it's happening now. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, at a time when Americans seemingly cannot be shocked by anything coming from D.C., many of us are stopped in our tracks by what is being slowly revealed about the reported torture and murder of Saudi journalist Jamel Hashochi. And many of us are equally shocked by the willingness of the Trump administration to mention weapon sales to Saudi Arabia connected to this subject of an apparent murder and attack on a, on a journalist. But on today's show, we're going to pivot away from Hashochi and from Yemen, where Saudi Arabia and its allies, including the United States, are responsible for not one death, but tens of thousands of deaths and the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. We instead turn to Palestine, where more than 200 peaceful protesters have been shot to death since March 30th, and 18,000 more have been wounded. Author and columnist Abba Solomon joins me again for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, and we will discuss Israel as a neo-fascist state. We also have part one of our report on college students here in the D.C. area who have been targeted by the anonymous surveillance website Canary Mission which posts falsified profiles filled with misinformation about students active in justice for Palestine movements or in the boycott divestment sanctions movement. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. Indigenous women from across the United States rallied in Northwest DC this week, where 94 banks were meeting, demanding that the banks obey their own rules and stop funding fossil fuel projects that violate native land and that are fueling runaway climate change. The women, along with allies in the climate justice movement, said that despite the so-called equator principles adopted by these banks, they continue to fund environmentally damaging projects that disregard indigenous communities' rights to free, prior, and informed consent. Jesse Parfait of the United Hama Nation in Louisiana explained how the pipeline expansion is hurting her community. We saw what happened at Dakota Access Pipeline. We saw what they did to our indigenous brothers and sisters there. And that is why they realized that it wasn't good enough yet they still funded the Bayou Bridge Pipeline and did the same things in Louisiana to my people. They are putting a pipeline through our source of drinking water. They are putting a pipeline and not giving the people of the predominantly black community 
of in St. James Parish and evacuation route. And they are putting this pipeline where we already have substantial land loss in Louisiana and the second highest rate of cancer in the entire country. And they putting a pipeline and criminalizing those who speak out against it. This process is not fast enough. They are not doing everything that they can do right now. People are being hurt and we are losing our we're losing our land, we're losing our trees, we are losing our protection against hurricanes, and that's all happening right now. We need answers now. We do not need answers in like five years. We need them to stop funding this. The women's delegation also met with the bankers and reminded those gathered that water protectors are still facing charges for peaceful protests two years ago against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Women are also taking the lead this Sunday, October 21st, for the Women's March on the Pentagon, which organizers say will oppose the bipartisan war machine. Marches are meeting starting at 11 a.m. at the Pentagon City Metro Station in Virginia and then rallying at the Pentagon from 1 to 5 p.m. The website for the march is marchonpentagon.com. In D.C. news, the D.C. Council moved this week one step closer to making fare evasion a civil rather than criminal offense. Currently, if you don't pay your fare on public transit in the district, it's considered a crime that can result in arrest up to 10 days in jail and a fine of up to $300. The Fare Evasion Decriminalization Act of 2017 would make fare evasion a civil offense punishable by a fine of no more than $100. Bill 22408 recognizes that no one should have to face arrest or jail time for not affording a $2 fare. Backers of the bill, including ACLU DC, say the current punishment does not fit the offense and that enforcement of such laws disproportionately impacts poor communities and communities of color. Councilmember Charles Allen told the Council's Committee of the Whole that one in seven district residents have been arrested because of not paying a public transportation fare in the past decade. Those numbers don't speak to what arrests and convictions do to those that are arrested or convicted, even if it's not charged by the prosecutor, can turn someone's life upside down. They may miss work or even lose a job, scramble to find childcare, school gets put on hold, and fees have to be paid. How can someone who can't afford a $2 fare cover these costs? And if they're convicted, they can be denied a job, housing, or student loans, and even barred from volunteering at their children's school. The collateral consequences are numerous and devastating, and they're vastly disproportionate to not paying a $2 bus fare. Also this week, the D.C. Council intervened in the announced closure of Providence Hospital, passing legislation that gives the mayor powers to force hospitals to remain open. And this week, minority-owned businesses that had been illegally locked out of their work sites filed a lawsuit against the developer, 1100 Eastern LLC, a subsidiary of the Neighborhood Development Company. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, DMV students speak out about being targeted by an anonymous website that attacks Palestinian solidarity activists. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, since it first registered its website in February 2015, Canary Mission has been dedicated to denigrating students all over the United States, mostly people of color and immigrants, for Palestine solidarity activism. The website creates detailed but false profiles that call the students anti-Semites or supporters of terrorism because of their support of Palestinian people. The lengthy posts are designed to intimidate students, especially as students graduate and attempt to look for work. This week, I sat down with two area students, Nathan and Andrew, who talked about their experience of being listed on Canary Mission. The conversation starts with Andrew talking. I was not on Canary until I keynoted at uh, National Students for Justice in Palestine conference. What year is that? That was, I think, 2016. And that's when I noticed maybe like a week after they announced it and put my name on their site, I was on Canary Mission. Hmm. And I think that that goes back to what you were saying, I think, earlier about um, the targeting of students, right? It's mainly about intimidation and uh, and trying to uh, freak students out and make them fear what might happen as a result of their activism. Right, right. And what kind of impact has that had being on the site? For me, the primary impact, honestly, is that I showed up at Ben Gurion Airport during my last trip to visit my family and uh, ended up in interrogation for, so typically my interrogations are three to four hours um, and they do not address my activism. They don't even really address my political views. Like they are trying to sniff out, you know, what kind of Arab I am is my impression. But on this trip, I spent eight and a half hours being interrogated sort of with, you know, waiting periods in between. And uh, the security services got pretty heavily involved in my interrogation. So that is like, usually there's a secondary person sitting in the room when you're interrogated. Um, When you initially come into those rooms, that person has not historically spoken to me. And then during this interrogation, they got extremely involved. The other thing I noticed was uh, by the third interrogation, the name Canary Mission was raised in my actual interrogation explicitly. Wow. And when you said your last trip, when was that? Uh, December to like December of last year. Okay. So about a year ago. And into January. Yeah. Okay. So it's like they're using it as a reference. Absolutely. I mean, the conversation I had with the interrogator, he was, you know, at some point in the middle of it. And I'd already realized and identified that. They were starting in order of things that were placed on my Canary Mission profile. So I knew something was wrong. But by the third interrogation, you know, he was grilling me about things. And then he said, have you ever heard of, and he, I think, incorrectly named it uh, Canarian Mission. Just like, might have been a language barrier. But uh, he was basically like, yeah, you know, do you know about the Canary Mission? And I said, yeah, I know about the Canary Mission. I'm aware I have a profile on it. And he was like, so you know? And I was like, I do. And he's like, so you admit you're on there? And I'm like, well, I don't think it's really a thing of admitting it. And I basically asked the interrogator at that point, I was like, this is, uh, you're basically Customs and Border Patrol. Are you telling me that you, as like an Israeli state agent, rely on an anonymous website for information about me? Mm-hmm. And he seemed kind of taken aback. I mean, it was a pretty weird exchange where he was like staring at me and 
was sort of like, what are you saying? And I'm like, I think you understood what I said. Are you using an anonymous website for information like to make decisions about what he had deemed me, which is he described me as a national security threat to the state of Israel. So I was mm-hmm. like, are you using this to make decisions in which you then call me a national security threat? Mm-hmm. And it got, I mean, it actually got pretty awkward and he, he, he like wouldn't respond to that or wouldn't answer it. And then I told him, you know, I think that's pretty embarrassing. I definitely tell my relatives that this is the way that things operate at the airport is that this is what you're focused on is like my political views and an anonymous website. Right. Well, one thing that's very obvious on the site, and I looked at a few profiles, uh, and it's obvious that they equate any type of political activism or advocacy for Palestinian people as terrorism. And what's your reaction to this trend, not only obviously in Israel, but the attempt to make that same type of equivocation here in the United States that uh, kind of labels any type of uh, criticism of Israel or uh, calling out Israel for its apartheid policies as terrorism. I mean, I, and I think they do it with two things, right? They do it with terrorism and also they use anti-Semitism as a label. And what I would say is like, one, the idea of describing, I mean, it's a very Israeli notion that like anything that represents or resembles any type of political action or political advocacy or activism is terrorism, which I think like even the Israelis call BDS economic terror or cultural terror. I mean, they use these very silly terms, you know, when they were talking about the Palestinians going to the UN for the nation state bid, right? They went for the the bid to make Palestine a state, and they called it something like uh, international terror, or like, what do they call it? They called it like diplomatic terror. I mean, just like these really ridiculous notions. And it's reflected in how they speak to people at the airport. The idea that we'd import that into the US, I think, is pretty disturbing. But I also don't want to overlook the fact that, for example, a history of black activism in the US, particularly civil rights movement, but like throughout history in the US, has been labeled similarly. Like black activists have been described as terrorists, um, the way that they're spoken about, the way that SNCC and other activist movements were described, right? They're being described that way. So, I mean, I think that it really is indicative of how um, states view activism, particularly like settler colonial states, view activism that aims to advance not only the interests of people, but really the sort of uh, equality and real actual democratic nature of, of these nation states. And so, I mean, I think it's a failure, honestly, of like a vision and awareness And I think the other thing, the anti-Semitism thing that I was mentioning is just, for me, as we see an actual resurgence of anti-Semitism in the U.S., and you see that the people who are active in enabling and supporting that are also supporting Israel, and as examples of that, you have some of the um, apologies the ADL has done uh, for things that were really terrible. You have the Trump administration's appointees and how Steve Bannon or Steve Miller and others will support, you know, a lot of these sort of white supremacist movements that are anti-Semitic while also supporting the state of Israel. I think it's fascinating that then 
people who are talking about basic human rights and ideas like equality for everyone are being labeled anti-Semitic. And I think that there, there's almost a shame in that, in that, um, you know, that is watering down the definition of anti-Semitism, which has historically, you know, we're only 75 years away from the Holocaust. It's not like, it's not like, every, you know, we've sort of gotten that far away from the type of anti-Semitism we saw in Europe. Right. Well, similar in the same vein of what you're describing, Israel itself, Netanyahu, has cozied up to uh, anti-Semitic leaders in Europe in terms of visiting Hungary and a lot of these uh, states where they have a lot of anti-Semitic behavior happening uh, in Poland, for example. So the ironies and the, the particular political arrangements right now is just really overwhelming. So, Nathan, I wanted to ask you about the fact that the funding for Canary Mission is coming from established Jewish organizations. And they're very often targeting students like yourself who are Jewish and putting you on this site and, you know, targeting you in in that way. Yes. So... When I was first put on Canary Mission and when I started to look into what exactly they're involved in doing, the more I started to realize just how absurd the entire operation was from their funding to what they post on the website. So when they put things up about me because I'm a student activist and also a Jewish individual, they actually did it and put an infamous quotes section on their website where they were like, Nathan said that as a Jew... He does not want to see Israeli apartheid maintained in his name. And I was reading that on my computer kind of in disbelief, like, are they calling me racist against Jews because as a Jewish person, I am denouncing this other institution that calls itself Jewish? Um, And it really reveals how morally and I guess I can say ideologically bankrupt Canary Mission really is in terms of its operations. And so now we have recent stories coming out showing some of the individuals and entities like Jewish Federations of San Francisco that have played a hand either directly or indirectly in providing large amounts of funding for Canary Mission. And it speaks to what has become a larger battle within the American Jewish community about where the soul of the American Jewish community really is, about what side of history we want to stand on, not just with Israel, but overall. Because these organizations that call themselves institutions of Jewish leadership, like Jewish Federations, which has helped fund Canary Mission, are also organizations that did not denounce Stephen Bannon for his anti-Semitism, organizations that have failed to denounce Trump in any serious way. And so when they start trying to say, we are the gatekeepers of anti-Semitism, we are going to put up this website to denounce all the people that we consider anti-Semitic. From my perspective as a Jewish student, they have no credibility because they're quiet when it matters and they're loud by attacking the powerless. I'm a young, white, Jewish male. And so anyone who looks at my Canary Mission profile, it's comical and how absurd it is that they're trying to use it to attack me. Like, in my opinion, my profile makes me look good. And I have no interest in going to Israel, so... I'm completely fine with myself being on there, but many other people that I know have been negatively impacted by Canary Mission or have faced the 
intimidation inherent in being listed on Canary Mission. So other activists from my school have decided that they are not going to speak out and instead are going to stand off to the side because they have family in Palestine and they want to be able to visit without being separated from their parents in some absurdly long interrogation processes that we just heard about from Andrew. And so they let people like myself and others speak. Now, thankfully, people that I know have started to be more vocal because now that Canary Mission has become such an intense um, hotspot for activism against anti-Palestinian racism, um, we are starting to see the community come together and more people willing to step up to the plate, even though it might risk being put on that website. Um, Just because the idea that we can have what is essentially a list of lots of Muslim and Arab people as these campus radicals, that notion itself is seen as disgusting enough by people who have any sense of decency that at this point we feel the solidarity among ourselves and among other parts of the community that now understand how absurd the entire operation is. Right. Yeah, kind of like a like a McCarthyite list, like a blacklist in a way. Um, and it is primarily targeting Muslims and people of Arab descent. You can tell, you're just scrolling through and seeing the names. What do you think is the solution now for student activists? Do, they, do you think that the kind of... I know there's a kind of an anti-Canary Mission website or something that uh, Katie Katie Saviano mentioned to me yesterday. Uh, kind of an anti-Canary Mission website is that gaining popularity or having an impact to counter what what they're doing? Oh yeah. So on the one hand, we have websites like Against Canary Mission that are meant for students to be able to put up their profile, show the great work that they do, both in activism, doing solidarity work, not just on Palestine, but against the war machine um, for Black Lives Matter and other causes and talk about where their dreams are for their career and make themselves look good. And that's because it's entirely motivated by the smear job that Canary Mission itself has trying to levy against people in our community. So it's a way that we try to fight back. Another way we fight back is just by not being intimidated by it in the first place and allowing the website itself to continue sullying its own name through the activities that it engages in because the more it puts people like myself, for instance, on it as, I guess I can say, a Jewish, anti-Jewish racist, um, if that makes any sense to anybody, uh, the more that the website, again, discredits itself. On the other hand, when now that we've started to see Website, not websites, organizations like Jewish Federations of San Francisco and several rather rich donors who have been funding Canary Mission, we now have a target for activism to try to get these institutions to stop funding, release their books, and show that they are going to stop trying to surveil Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim activists and really take the fight to the people responsible for the website in the first place so that the website can get taken down for good. So, Andrew, what would you like to see happen now? What is the focus for your work right now? I don't want it to be, I don't want to end on a a note like it's all about Canary Mission, because obviously people are powerful well beyond what this website is doing. 
I mean, I just want to flag the the other thing that's been interesting out of these investigations of Canary Mission is not only that, one, we found out these funders are funneling their money through some Israeli uh, institution that doesn't have a real office, which raises a lot of questions. But on top of that, there have been real questions about what the Canary Mission's connection is to Israeli intelligence, what the Canary Mission's uh, connection is to some of the military operations, um, things like, I think it's called Kela Shlomo, which like is a quasi-private, uh, quasi-public uh, funded institution mm. and, you know, seems to be, quote-unquote, fighting uh, the delegitimization of Israel. But I think, obviously, these uh, types of institutions are delegitimizing themselves. The other thing is we now know who's actually behind Canary Mission, which we didn't know before, right? Uh, right? So they, they named Jonathan Bash as the head of it. The documentary that has yet to be released by Al Jazeera about the Israel lobby investigation, where an undercover journalist was able to obtain a lot of information about Canary Mission and who's behind it and who's working in coalition with it, has yet to be released, right? Because uh, essentially there is a lot of pressure on the Qatari government not to release it, seems mm. evident. Um, but that video, at this point, that documentary has been leaked enough to enough journalists that they've written about it, right? Um, Ali Abu Nami at the Electronic Intifada, um, Josh Nathan Kazis at the Forward, they've all started to write about what's in the content of this documentary. And it gives a really good look at how mainstream, not only Jewish, but those particular organizations that are pro-Israel have really started to work in alliance to smear powerless students, honestly, and I don't want to say that to be disempowering, but many of these students, like myself, are just coming into their activism and are being smeared by these powerful institutions. And I think that that's a shame. In terms of going forward, I mean, when I think about the situation back home, to me, apartheid doesn't get better. It crumbles. And before it crumbles, it only gets worse, right? That's the model. You see that with every issue. You see that uh, sort of pretty persistently and consistently throughout history. So I think, unfortunately, we haven't seen the worst of the situation yet. But I also think that at the same time, we are seeing both, one, the Israeli government rapidly, uh, as they call it, delegitimizing themselves with their actions. Mm -hmm. I think that they are so confident that they've begun to uh, pass legislation like the nation-state law that uses language that is clearly antithetical to the values that even liberal Zionists believe in. And so it's harder and harder for so many Jewish Americans, I think, to support Israel, but also for so many Democrats uh, in the United States to support Israel. Um, so that's a positive trend, in my opinion. And the other one is that, you know, the efforts to boycott and isolate Israel are increasingly successful. You know, it was just a few months ago that the Meteor Festival, which was supposed to be this big Woodstock-like international event uh, in Israel, was uh, saw the cancellation of 20 artists, including, you know, the famous Lana Del Rey. So I actually think that things are really shifting. I think that we're probably not seeing that a lot of artists are deciding they simply won't even make they won't even take a chance in signing a contract to play in Israel and may tell their managers in advance to explicitly watch out for it. So no more 
uh, people who go on European tours and then hop over to Tel Aviv and then fly back. Right. So I would say the one thing I've noticed is actually a resurgence in student organizing over the past year, despite the Canary Mission. I mean, in terms of the National Students for Justice in Palestine uh, conference, the gathering, the convening that happens every year, seems pretty active. I've seen student groups uh, across the country holding a variety of events around the the return march mm-hmm. and other um, sort of milestones and moments. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't. I think it's actually. I think this year has actually shown that uh, there's a new resurgence in student organizing. That was my interview with Nathan and Andrew, two students here in the D.C. area targeted by the surveillance website Canary Mission, which targets defenseless college students who are active in the Palestinian solidarity work on their campuses. When we come back, the F word, this month's discussion about fascism on Israel as a neo-fascist state. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, at a time when Americans seemingly cannot be shocked by anything coming out of D.C., many of us are stopped in our tracks by what is being slowly revealed about the reported torture and murder of Saudi journalist Jamel Heshochi. And many of us are equally shocked by the willingness of the Trump administration to place the importance of weapons sales in the same plane as a murder and this blatant attack on the one profession actually protected by the U.S. Constitution. But on today's show, we're going to pivot away from Hashokji and from Yemen, where Saudi Arabia and its allies, including the United States, are responsible for not one death, but tens of thousands of deaths and the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. We instead turn to Palestine, where more than 200 peaceful protesters have been shot to death since March 30th, and 18,000 more have been wounded. Author and columnist Abba Solomon joins me again for this month's episode of The F Word on fascism, and we'll discuss Israel as a neo-fascist state. So with me now is Abba Solomon, author and columnist. 
who I spoke to earlier this year for the F word. And we talked about Israel and the relationship of Israel to the world and also American Jews. And since that time, so many things have happened. Continued killings of unarmed Palestinians on the Great March of Return. And then most recently, continued demolition of homes and I think much of a village of Palestinian people. And so for the F word, we're talking about fascism and we're talking about Israel as a neo-fascist state. So I wanted to get an update from you about what is going on in Israel. Well, the nation state law really is a codification of a race-based state or ethnic identity-based state that is really chilling. It's formalizing in a new way, the foundations of Israeli sovereignty. And the slogan for Israel is that it's a Jewish and democratic state. And the joke is that for Jews, it's democratic. And for Arabs, it's a Jewish state. And Mm. this really codifies that in a way that most countries wouldn't do overtly. Well, activists, those of us who are looking at the issue, that's what we keep running into, that Israel gets a a pass or an exception for doing these outrageous things, be it killing people, unarmed protesters on a weekly basis, or passing blatantly apartheid law that is uh, discriminatory and designating much of the population to second-class citizenship or denying their citizenship. So what do you see happening to kind of break this never-never land that we're living in when it comes to Israel? Well, it seems to be coming to a head in kind of a, oh, I suppose you could say an axis of evil. You have the U.S., you have Saudi Arabia and Israel, who have been, especially since the Trump administration, really in an overt alliance against Iran. Uh, It all has to do with money and power and really mutual usefulness. There's a book that came out in 2015 by Jeff Halper, who is an Israeli-American campaigner in Israel for equal rights, uh, called War Against the People. And he's talking about uh, the Israeli high-tech industry and its marketing worldwide of control systems. Uh, These are kind of uh, surveillance and control. The euphemism is homeland security. But it's very useful for any dictatorship to cheaply and massively create databases and matrices of control of populations. So the Israelis have been very useful to any government that really wants to exercise a high degree of control and prevention of dissent. Hmm. And I I think your question was, where is this going to go? It really does seem uh, uh, coming to a head that the fates of these governments are intertwined. The Israeli government, the American administration, such as we have the Saudis, things are in motion. Well, right now, the hot topic is the fate of Jamel Hashochi, and he's believed, you know, murdered in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. And 
because of that, people have started to look at Saudi Arabia's role in Yemen and the fact that you have this all this focus on this one man, this man dying, and you know the the tragedy and the apparently really barbaric nature of it. But at the same time, people are turning a blind eye to what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen. Yes, yes. And when I'm looking at the Middle East, I'm also saying that people are turning a blind eye to what Israel is doing in Gaza on a weekly basis. So uh, when you say that things are coming to a head, is that what you mean? Yes, that this is uh, bringing to public attention a really ugly pattern, only because of media attention. For some reason, a destruction of an entire country of Yemen or the imprisonment of people in Gaza, you know, with very little water at this point, is somehow old news or not significant. In the same way that it took in the, in the U.S. civil rights movement, it took reporters taking live feeds or as live as they could get them to the South in the early 60s to illustrate what was happening and dramatize it and humanize uh, Jim Crow and protests. If there hadn't been that, the vulnerability of civil rights activists and voter registration drives wouldn't have been there without CBS and NBC reporters who were making it the news. Mm -hmm. And Yemen just doesn't make the news because the agony is so vast, but still is, it just becomes background in Western, in the Western imagination, in the same way that uh, fashion news from Tel Aviv can go worldwide, but massive suffering a few miles south in Gaza doesn't make news. Yeah. And what's, what's people who are considered important. So we're talking about the outside looking at Israel. What about inside? Uh, you talked about the the tremendous impact of this this new law well, i keep calling it just the apartheid law but what are some of the detail impacts that you've seen a lot of it is atmospheric it's making some general principles that the purpose of the government is to provide home for the jewish people and that that's a primary goal not the to provide for the, the security and rights and welfare of everybody who is an Israeli, but that becomes the prime directive. But the effect is atmospheric. Uh, in municipal elections in Tel Aviv and Haifa, there are these incredibly vulgar posters now put out by major parties saying, vote for us, or basically your daughter will have to wear a hijab, or saying the, the, the choice is between the Israeli flag or a menacing-looking figure from Hamas who's, you know, identifiably Arab and identifiably a member of Hamas. Uh, this is in municipal elections where voters include Arabs, but voters are asked to vote by uh, ethnicity in, in a fairly outrageous way uh, wow. against their federal, fellow citizens. Wow. Would that be related to this recent demolition of homes in this village? Uh, that's a boldness, but that's this has been going on for so long in the occupied territories. The encroachments, the uh, the declarations of some village as unauthorized, uh, 
because, you know, if you control the laws, you can control who can get a permit. And you can make things either very easy for settlers or for uh, new, new Jewish settlements, or you can make them incredibly hard. And so that if you have a government that's, and this, in this case it's really an occupation government uh, in the territories, militarily administered, it's simply more impudence, I suppose, uh, something that we would think of as offending any sense of justice, but that uh, the Israelis feel, I think that the U.S. has their back. The, uh, a lot of uh, structures that they are threatening and tearing down are uh, contributed by uh, European Union aid groups and governments so that the uh, EU will, like, for instance, uh, help put up an elementary school. Modest, but then the Israelis will tear it down, uh, the military, so that all of these aspects of willingness to be seen doing these things has to do in part with, I think, the fact that Trump is in the White House. The American ambassador just went to basically gave his mark of approval to an occupation, a settler city of Ariel in the West Bank, uh, where until this administration, no American diplomats had gone to the West Bank officially for any kind of ceremonial purpose. Hmm. I don't know where this can end, but the Israeli government is a very right-wing one. The question of fascism is an interesting one because there's been a lot of hallmarks over the entire Netanyahu administration, but really the entire project has been ethnically based. So it's hard to tell where they cross the line, where it happened, when it became, uh, I mean, the, the words apartheid are appropriate, certainly in the occupied territories. And then the question of fascism you don't necessarily need to change the laws to have a fascist atmosphere. You simply have to administer them in a way that is impudent. And I'm wondering if we might end up with that in the United States. Yes. Well, as part of this series, you know, we've kind of talked about trends not only in places outside this country, but also in, in this country. And, if we have the rise of neo-fascism uh, around the globe, you know, uh, an openly fascist person, you know, leading the election in Brazil, a, yes. you know, yes. uh, these uh, ultra-right-wing governments in, I think, Poland and Hungary, where Netanyahu has actually visited, right? I think you told me the last time and actually struck up um, – relationships with these uh, neo-fascist governments and le government leaders. So uh, yes. this, you know, it's, it's kind of things kind of topsy-turvy when you uh, befriend people who are openly anti-Semitic. And, and then um, one of the young activists I talked to, you know, for the show saying that, and then the people who are fighting for Palestinian rights, but you call them anti-Semitic. So it becomes kind of topsy-turvy, and it doesn't help us answer the question where this is going. No. There is uh, an interesting phenomenon that Trump is popular in Israel. He's one of the few 
Israel is one of the few places in the world where the majority of voters have very positive views of Donald Trump. That isn't true among American Jews. And this is really, I'd say, tearing up the American Jewish community. The fact that Israel is, uh, or the current administration in Israel is so cozy with a figure that to American Jews is fairly frightening because he is so recognizably hostile to minorities. So also inside, I'm curious about in terms of the IDF, the, the soldiers, we, we talked before about the training and the mindset that goes into the IDF, young IDF soldiers. Are there any new developments there in terms of this ongoing march of return and the fact that at this point hundreds of Palestinians have been killed and tens of thousands have been wounded, uh, some very seriously, uh, making them amputees, basically? Yes, the numbers are astounding. Uh, In other words, the percentage of the population of Gaza that has now been injured is a surreal figure. And medical care is tough, uh, under-resourced, so that you're creating a population of injured people in an area that doesn't have adequate medical care in the first place. And this has been going on, I think, since we last spoke. It was already going on for a number of weeks. So the Great March of Return is providing a sort of nonviolent resistance week after week of people being willing to demonstrate knowing that they will be shot at. It's really astounding. In normal times, it it would be making more of an impact. And you say in normal times, talk about that a little bit more because as an observer, how do you see these not being normal times? Well, I feel personally stressed. (laughs) Certainly, I know that Israelis who have emigrated but who keep in touch with Israel try to speak and try to converse with Israelis about the utter pointlessness and the cruelty of the strategy of the Israeli government. And Israel has completely bought into its own propaganda that Arabs are only hostile to them, that Palestinians, that people who live a few miles away, only dream of killing them. And so that really, I've read a number of memoirs from Israelis who talk about how they had to be grown-ups or uh, older before they met their first Palestinian-Israeli citizen and realized, you know, the common humanity, because the conditioning and the ideology is so strong. It's a very unwholesome situation, given the amount of armaments and uh, power that the Israeli government wields. But what's happening right now is the United States administration is making life as difficult as possible by cutting off UNHCR funding. Uh, There's basically uh, very high unemployment in Gaza and the West Bank, and the uh, UN High Commission for Refugees has provided all kinds of essential services, food support, educational support, to keep civil life going for people since 1948. Uh, So this is a very vulnerable population, which 
There's a Palestinian word or Arabic word, samud, uh, endurance. And that this has been a long-term, multi-generational exercise in endurance to keep identity, keep a sense of purpose, keep a sense of hope. Um, and it's, been, it's really been remarkable in these circumstances that there is a pol- uh, Palestinian people that still has aspirations to live. Something that you said, it, it reminded me that I just saw a report about the water crisis becoming more severe in Gaza. And already like 97% of the water is, is not really drinkable. So that's one thing. The other thing I thought about is the fact that when we spoke last, we hadn't really seen or understood more of the details of this plan by Jared Kushner for, I don't know whether, what's he calling it? The new deal or the, the big plan or the something. Yes. The idea is a uh, kind of a universal theory that's going to solve it all. Right. And, as it as it turns out, it seems to be just basically trying to force the Palestinians to accept the terms of apartheid. Down to having Bantu stands, yes. Yeah. And so as I think about fascism and neo-fascism, it's like this country, the United States, trying to use its power to create uh, what would be a very untenable situation for Palestinians, basically to try and complete the institutionalization of the apartheid and what I consider a neo-fascist state. Yes, and the uh, what's discouraging is the rulers of Saudi Arabia and Egypt really abandoning any pretense of concern for Palestinians. Uh, they're in a, in a de facto alliance with Israel and uh, op- more and more open cooperation. Uh, so the Palestinians really have, uh, there's a, a kind of a uh, uh, saying that, you know, well, they're, they're basically useful. The Palestinian issue and the Palestinian people are useful and have been useful to various Arab governments, uh, auto, you know, leaders who are have been perfectly willing to use rhetoric, but who have very little interest in the uh, welfare or the actual achievement of anything for Palestinians. Uh, the Israelis have more money and technology to share. They can influence whether the United States is supportive of Saudi Arabia or Egypt um, so that being a friend to Israel is more profitable than continuing to work with and for Palestinians. Well, as I look at this and I guess try to sum up our conversation, I, I can just say that it's very clear to me. I mean, I really feel it in my bones as an African-American woman that if Yemenis can be slaughtered, can have, you know, basically genocide committed against them. If Palestinians can be in a situation of apartheid and genocide, then that that means that all of us are in danger. That's the way I feel. I feel that if that can stand as a reality, anywhere on the planet, then that means that everyone, especially any person of color, any religious minority or whatever, is in danger because that can be us next. That's just how I feel about it. Yeah, and I think really uh, there is a benefit 
of this story about the journalist who uh, went to, you know, an embassy and encountered a barbaric situation. That is either, if, it, if it's allowed to stand, it's a warning to journalists and it's a warning to everyone that when they interact with their government, that they can't count on certain basic rights. It's an instilling of fear. So it's really a, an object lesson for the future for us all, that we must be um, less assertive, less um, demanding, uh, and uh, have to um, really pull our punches about basic human rights. Well, I guess we want to say that they would like that to be the lesson, but we can't accept it. You know, oh, I, I agree with you, certainly. I mean, the fact that they were beheading dozens of people before this, you know, and it somehow that that didn't make news. And we kind of swept that under the rug. And the fact that they were, you know, bombing school buses full of children in Yemen, but somehow that didn't move the Congress to stop the aid and to stop our actual participation in the slaughter. I think that... You know, I'll take this. I'll take it. If if Hoshoshi's death, if it means that people, more people will take a look and, and wake up and say, okay, we are not going to be complicit. I mean, I'll take it. If that is like the beginning of the unraveling of these unholy alliances. And really, it's a question of barbarism in the sense of the abolitionist fight. If you read like Frederick Douglass, the temptation has always been to try to be a moderate. And there's got to be some things that you're not moderate about. That, you know, the, uh, the idea was, uh, you know, you can't have advancement without struggle. The reason this is on my mind is I was just watching an Israeli-American theater piece about the idea of how do you talk to within the Jewish community about these issues, just Israeli policy. And the message of the, the theater piece was that there has to be a way to calmly talk about these things. But how do you calmly talk about mass bloodletting and oppression of Palestinians? Even yeah. if you're going to get an angry response. Yeah, the whole idea of being calm about it is not natural. You right. Know, if, if, right. If you can start to be calm about that, then I think you become like kind of the monster. <laughs> right, right. You know. Right. Um, and we're getting close to, I don't know, I just find the model of abolition close. You're talking about universal human rights and whether they're respected you know, the right to eat, the right to pursue a pr profession, the right to uh, educate your kids, live in safety, uh, take care of your health. These are all things that uh, are taken away if you're enslaved. But they're also taken away if you're in a class of people. And there's all kinds of ways that various societies take those rights away from their own people or from subject colonies, either officially or unofficially. 
And so it's a question of human rights and getting angry about them. Right. And I guess it would be almost another conversation to talk about the relationship of Americans to those rights when we see them eroded right here at home. So how much empathy or solidarity are Americans feeling, especially if we're not educated? And, you know, that's a whole part of the discussion, too, of, you know, the activists that I'm, I'm talking to who were targeted by Canary... Uh, Canary Mission, yes. Yeah, Canary Mission, because they understand and, and see very clearly in universities, colleges, how much people aren't educated about what what is really happening in Israel and Palestine. And so the idea of empathy, the idea of, of really being... Uh, educated even about what's happening here in the United States is kind of lost on a lot of people. We we don't really have that that level of sophistication that maybe we should to really understand. No, but we are entertained a lot. Yeah, we're we're entertained for sure. I'll have to end it there. I've been speaking with author and columnist Abba Solomon. Thank you for joining me again on on the ground, Abba. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That was my interview earlier this week with the author and columnist Abba Solomon. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.